Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out, as you guessed it, every Monday morning at 8 a.m., where we distill the insights from the noise. If you would like to see the newsletter version of this podcast, which often contains additional information like images, diagrams, and links, and so on, you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and submit your email address. It will automatically be put into the email update that goes out every Monday morning at 8 a.m. So here are the big themes we are noticing in the news this week. The first one is what I call strategic flexibility is a myth. You need, as a business, well, as in anything in life, you need to go all in. So where does this story originate from? Well, COVID-19 is obviously a big topic driving news and corporate strategy around the world. And one of the big things we're seeing is that banks, financial services companies that made a big investment in going digital before COVID-19 are now reaping the benefits. There were banks which looked at their volume of traffic, foot traffic across their branches and decided very early that they're going to reduce the number of branches and reduce the size of the branches that they did keep open. And the goal was to have superior digital offerings so that customers could do the majority of their banking online and on their phones and so on without having to go into the bank. Now, that's an example of luck, I would say, but not exactly. Now, why do I say it's luck? Well, for one, if COVID-19 had not come along, eventually they would have reaped the benefits of going digital. But COVID-19 did come along. And it forced a massive acceleration towards banks that had the infrastructure in place to help clients who did not want to wait in line or go into a physical location. Now, the thing about being strategically flexible, many companies talk about this. They want to have strategic flexibility. When you have strategic flexibility, it means that you can pursue two or more valid strategies at any given time. The issue about going digital is a long-term trend whereby everyone's going to have to go digital to some degree. It's not as if in 15 years you can be the one bank that has no digital offerings and have a successful and thriving business. Of course, there may be some exceptions to the rule, but by and large, digital is a trend. So when it comes to trends, you have no choice but to eventually go there. But the issue of strategic flexibility is something companies are not talking about, whereby they're saying that, well... When COVID-19 came along, we were caught flat-footed. So what we need is we need to have a strategy that is so flexible that no matter what happens in the market, we can respond to it. Strategic flexibility does not actually work. I'm going to explain why it doesn't work. So in my time as a senior partner and as a partner and as an engagement manager and business analyst, I've obviously worked with many companies around the world. And with every single executive In every single time of my career, they're always responding to some major traumatic event that has shaped their industry and their country, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a flood, whether it's a fire, whether it's a bombing, could be anything. And invariably, that traumatic event forces a shift in their strategy. And I've had this discussion in every single year of my career, whereby an executive wants to have strategic flexibility. And I always explain to them why they should not have strategic flexibility, why it's actually a tremendous destruction of value if they went down this route. I'm going to give you an example of this, right? Why it's so hard to do this. For a company to be good at its strategy is very hard. For a company to be exceptional, for a company to perfect what it does requires tremendous effort. I'm going to use Walmart as an example because they've done many good things over the last few years 
in responding to threats in their industry. There are obviously other examples, and of course they can do many things better, but let's take them as an example, right? So you have Walmart, which has perfected serving middle America with a wider selection, everything under one roof at a very, very reasonable price. Now, can you imagine, just for a second picture, visualize the organization that sits behind Walmart that ensures their stores run like a very well-run clock. Think about, let's just zoom in on a buyer, for example, right? Let's imagine that there's a buyer out there who buys for Walmart. The person has obviously spent a few years, let's assume, at Walmart. They have been trained in Walmart's culture of, I'm guessing, buying in bulk, buying at the lowest price, sourcing from suppliers who can offer a very, very good price at a very good quality in the volume that Walmart wants. Those buyers go for training on how to negotiate, how to get the best prices, how to make sure that they're working with their suppliers to ensure continuity of supply, how they're making investments to drive down prices, to educate their customers. Everything about what Walmart is doing is about ensuring continuity of supply at the right volume, at the right prices for a very appreciative customer base. That buyer goes for training, goes for seminars. He has or she has meetings with their teams to understand negotiating tactics, sourcing tactics for volume, continuity, and best prices. That's all they do. They get up in the morning. They have to stay ahead of the latest techniques to ensure that. Time is limited, right? Let's assume they get into the office at 8 a.m. and they're leaving at, I don't know what time you finish at Walmart, let's say 5 p.m., 6 p.m. They've got to have meetings. They've got to attend seminars. They've got to go for training. They're probably working with management consultants who are teaching them about the latest techniques to ensure continuity of supply at the right volume for the right price. That's difficult to do. If you're in business, you know being good at your business is tremendously difficult. It takes you every hour of every day to do that. You don't have time to do something else, right? Now, that is what Walmart is good at. To say Walmart needs to have strategic flexibility is to say that Walmart's strategy of volume, continuity of supply, and best prices, Walmart as a business must be able to shift that strategy in a week or two towards, let's say, low volume, infrequent supply, and higher prices for whatever reason. Let's forget the reason why they have to do it. Maybe the market changes. Maybe there's some disruption like COVID-19 we just cannot predict that forces them to go in that direction. Now, when companies talk about flexible strategies, they're saying that their strategy that they have must already be capable of shifting in a week or two. But how do you do that? If you're committing 10% of management's time and 10% of resources to being flexible, that's 10% of redundancy in your system. Now let's go back to the level of the buyer, because when you talk about strategy, we assume it's a document, but a strategy lives in the actions of employees. So we have this buyer, right? And he or she is spending all their time just trying to be the best at volume, continuity of supply, and best low prices. Are we now saying that this buyer needs to spend 10%, 20%, 30% of their time learning about how to buy in an, in an opposite strategy? How would that work? Would they then get a document which tells them what to do if they need to change their strategy? But how would that work? I mean, even if there was a document telling them what to do, 
Does this mean they also have suppliers on hand who can work with the new strategy? So if they have suppliers on hand, who's negotiating that supply contract? And why would a supplier agree to something that may never happen? And how does it work? I mean, if you're spending your whole life trying to be the best at one thing, does that mean you're going to spend 30% of your time trying to be the opposite of that one thing? So when companies talk about agile strategies, it's a romanticized myth because what you're basically saying is you want to build in some redundancy, some buffer in your system. And it's never worked. Ideally, what companies need to do is they need to be flexible. Flexible doesn't mean that your strategy can just change. No, your strategy needs to pick a direction and go all in. But when things go wrong, the company must be willing to move fast enough to find another strategy. It doesn't mean that it must have an alternative strategy on hand, which is just sitting there that everyone in the organization is spending time looking at because that's just waste. I want to talk about trends, right? Because companies always get a response saying, what about big trends like going digital? Shouldn't companies be agile towards that? That's different. When you talk about a trend, like going digital or moving into emerging markets, that's not about an agile strategy. That's your strategy. You, if the world is going digital, you need to be moving towards digital. That's not about being agile. That's your strategy. An agile strategy means that if a dislocation occurs, an abrupt dislocation, how do you quickly change what you're doing to compensate for that? And the reality is that while a lot of companies talk about building buffers and backups and building warehouses full of stuff, you're going to get punished for that at some point. Because the way the world works is that let's assume that you are a company that serves a certain clientele and there are other companies that serve that clientele as well. Those redundancies and buffers you build in, that's a cost to the system. It's a cost you have to either eat into your margins or you have to pass along to customers. If you pass it along to customers, why would they buy from you when they can buy from someone else who doesn't have those redundancies in? So that's the insight here. Whenever you're thinking about an agile strategy, it's not about responding to a trend. That's your strategy. But you can't have an agile strategy. You have to have a strategy that goes all in. But when things go wrong, you have to be willing as a business to change and adjust. And if you have an agile strategy, you're going to have a very confused employee base because they're not going to know what the priorities are. The next big trend we're reading about, and that's driven by um, a number of articles I've seen about how uh, Korean tech companies like Samsung are working overtime to protect their corporate secrets as Asian rivals try to poach stuff. And this got me thinking about arms races over the years. An arms race is basically where two nations compete to build superior armies. And the reason why for a long time building a superior army was the way nations excelled and thrived is because for a long time the only way commerce existed is because you had a big army and you went into a village and you plundered it, pillaged it, stole all the women and children, enslaved half the population that you didn't kill. And that's how you created wealth. And then over time, as commerce took hold and as people learned to trade and as they realized that, hold on a second, trading is better than stealing, you needed a big army, but you didn't really need a big army. I mean, you just needed to join an alliance like NATO and get the United States to pay for everything to protect you and everything worked out. But there is a new arms race. Now, a nation's future, its productivity, its wealth, its reason for being is by and large driven by access to talented employees, talented citizens, the educational level of its citizenry, and access to best practice and corporate ideas. That's the new arms race. 
you need to know how to raise productivity, how to develop capital markets, how to open up markets, how to build supply chains. Those who have access to this knowledge will win the modern arms race. Yes, you need big armies and so on, but you can have a big army and you can still have a model of capitalism that doesn't work, like the former Soviet Union. So the modern arms race is about how talented people move around from company to company, but now it's even from country to country, and take intellectual property and sometimes documents with them. And it's something we don't really talk about much, but with this audience, which is squarely in this category of being the people that drive the wealth of nations. The question becomes, what can you take with you when you move from country to country or employer to employer? So currently the way intellectual property laws work and the way I would say the goodwill between companies work is that you're not allowed to take an idea and use it. But even that one's a bit fuzzy, right? If it's patented, you can't use it. But if it's not patented, you can use it. That's why patents exist. And you're not allowed to take documents. But you can take a whole lot of other things with you when you leave and there's no way of protecting it. I remember way back earlier in my career when I did work in some emerging economies. I did a lot of work in emerging economies. And I worked in some countries whereby it's the first time the firm had ever done a project. So I worked in some countries where it's the first engagement the firm has ever done. And we're doing work to help them structure their industries, come up with an industrial plan. In other cases, come up with an incentivization model. In other cases, prepare to grow the wealth of the country. Very important work. And while I don't want to make it sound like I did all of the work, but I think it's fair to say that assuming it was good work, it would have an enormous ripple effect for this country, not just in that time period, but for generations to come. So the work is important. The transfer of knowledge is important. And the insight I want to make here is that I think as you go about your work, it's important to understand two things. One is that the role we play, not just as consultants, but as educated elites, as many people would refer to us, is quite an important role. The movement of intellectual property, the pools of intellectual property and as they move, dictate how nations, cities, states, countries will progress over time. I was reading the story of Taiwan and how they built their semiconductor industry. And it came down to one man that the government of Taiwan influenced or encouraged to return to Taiwan from the United States and start building a semiconductor industry. This one man. Of course, many people played a role, but he catalyzed it. And I would wonder what would have happened if this one man didn't return to Taiwan. I'm sure they would have found other ways to do it, but how long would it have taken? What would have been Taiwan's GDP today? And there are numerous examples like that in China, in Korea, in the Czech Republic today, Israel, Saudi Arabia. Every country has a story like this. Someone seeds the knowledge. So that's the first insight. The second one is that I think that what we're going to see is as movement of individual and ideas becomes the lifeblood of nations, more so than it was yesterday and a year before that and five years ago, we're going to see new rules put in place to guide the movement of intellectual property. It is a bit um, outdated, I think, the rules today about just patenting ideas and not taking documents. There is so much else you can take from one employer to the other that is very valuable. And the laws are outdated. We're going to see a lot of action on that front. And what's going to be interesting is how companies, and this is so what of the inside, how does a company or a region pull in ideas as these laws come up to prevent the free flow of ideas. It will happen, 
And it's only a matter of time. It's a question of how do we respond to that. The next big topic I'm reading about is, well, I'll call this things don't change much or do they? And over a period in the last week, BHP been a miner, a company that digs holes in the ground, of course, in a very sophisticated way, has become the most valuable company in the British economy, which is one of the most advanced modern economies of the world that is heavily services based, which is if you've ever worked in the city of London, you know, financial services is a significant driver of wealth in the British economy. Despite everything we're reading about the rise of service-based economies in wealthy developed nations, the rise of climate change or climate-based industries, the rise of legal, the rise of consulting, the rise of asset management, the rise of wealth management, all concentrated in wealthy economies. Despite all of that, the largest company by market cap is a miner. And then the two largest companies behind that is Shell, which is an oil and gas company, and Unilever. We're not seeing a bank there. We're not seeing a tech company. We're not seeing an auto company. We're not seeing any of the companies that we consider modern economy companies. So what is, what is the insight? Yeah, well, there's two ways to look at this. One is that maybe the UK is showing us that we're going to live in a world whereby tech and finance and services will be the dominant drivers of growth. But companies like oil and gas companies, mining companies can still be dominant players. Alternatively, maybe it's a sign that the, United, that the UK economy is not as strong as we think it is. It could be one or the either. But there's another insight here. Maybe all the press coverage about the decline of miners, the decline of oil and gas is overhyped. Maybe the media is publishing one set of stories without fully considering all of the drivers at work and all of the sources of value. And we can even go deeper in the insights. If you are an investing professional and you had read everything you have read in the press recently about the decline of miners and oil and gas, and you said, well, these companies have no future, so I'm going to bail out, you would miss out on an opportunity as BHP's share price rallied. And BHP is exposed to coal. Of course, they're exposed to different kinds of coal and they're exiting some categories of coal, but they're exposed to coal. But more importantly, and yes, I'm even deeper inside, they're exposed to categories of commodities that are seeing increased growth, like copper. BHP owns some of the largest copper mines in the world. As electric vehicles and digitization takes place, you need copper. But what happens when emerging economies like China, I'm going to talk about China a little bit, a very big story we're going to talk about soon. But what happens when other big economies like Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil start booming, India? And the things that they need are things that are fallen out of favor in the West. Do we then say because a company is domiciled in the West, exposed to products that have fallen out of favor in the West, but are heavily in demand and they're seeing an increase in their share price. Do we then say we will not be exposed to them as investors? And this is what happens when you get interlinked global supply chains. BHP is headquartered in Australia, but the majority of their assets sit in emerging economies and to some degree, developed economies like Australia as well. But they're exposed to demand in emerging economies. So they're domiciled in one location where they raise their capital. The assets sit in another location, the demand is in, in fact in a third location. But if we sit in the West, and our policies and procedures move in one direction, 
do we then exit companies, our holdings in companies, who are showing material wealth creation, even if they're exposed to industries we actually don't want to invest in? How do we play this? I mean, if you are an investor that you have an index fund that automatically buys the biggest uh, shares, obviously weighted in some way on the UK stock market, the FTSE 100, do you now decide you're going to exit BHP and Shell? How does it work? And the, the insight here is that it's very hard to decouple strategies because the world is not decoupled. You know, I've seen many investors say they're going to pull out of certain commodities and certain sectors and certain regions of the world. It's actually hard to do that. You know, if you are, for example, a bank, banks have said this for a long time, that they're going to withdraw. But if you're a bank and you don't fund a coal field, but then your wealth management arm invests in an index fund that's exposed to the largest companies in the UK stock market, of which the top, of which two of the top three happen to be old school companies, you're still supporting an old industry. This is not to say Shell and BHP are not doing anything wrong. It's not for me to say that. But what I want people to understand is how difficult strategies are to implement, how hard it is to decouple things. But now I'm going to come to the biggest story of the week. It's by far the biggest story, and I'm very surprised that it has not received more attention than it has because it has incredible importance for the world. For every single CEO in the world, I would say this is the most important story they need to worry about. And I would say if you are the uh, president of a country, as you're making decisions about where to focus your industries and so on, and which to incentivize, which to disincentivize, this is an important story. The biggest story that everyone missed is the fact that the number of registered newborns in China dropped by 15% year to year. That means that if you look at the number of newborns, children being born in China, the absolute number dropped by 15% in one year. This, you know, as a corporate strategist, this for me is such a phenomenal statistic that if I was, well, I am actually, but as I'm meeting every executive in our coaching program, I make sure their companies are thinking about how this impacts them. And for a lot of them, they don't understand how it impacts them. So I'm going to unpack it here. What this means is that the Chinese number of newborns are dropping. Why does this matter? Well, at a certain point, and this is predicted to be 2027, the number of newborns are going to be less than the number of deaths in China. Whether it's deaths or migration, doesn't matter. In simple terms, the population of China is going to start decreasing from 2027. This has profound implications for the world. The reason it has profound implications for the world, let's explain this in some numbers here. Let's assume the population of China was 100 people. It's not, but let's put it to 100 people to do the math. For China's economy to grow, it can do one of two things. It can either add more people to its population. So if it, let's assume each person there generated a dollar worth of value in a year. So if the Chinese population is 100 people, its GDP is $100. If it wants to grow its GDP, it can increase its population by, let's say, five people per year, which means its GDP, and assuming the, the output of those five new people is $1, China's GDP grows up to goes to from from $100 to $105. But if China's if China's population stays at 100, for its GDP to keep growing, the amount of wealth it needs to create per person, the amount of output, not wealth, the amount of output per person needs to be more than $1. So if China wants to grow its GDP by 5% and its population is not growing, its output per person needs to grow by 5%. 
People have to be 5% more productive just to do more with fewer people. But the story gets more interesting in two ways. One is, is population going to start shrinking? So if the population goes from 100 people to 95 people and it wants to increase its output, its GDP by 5%, it doesn't have to just increase output by 5%, just to increase it by more than 5% because it has fewer people. But life's not that easy. If your population is fixed and you have no and you don't have enough newborns, not no newborns, you don't have enough newborns, that means the percentage of people that are getting older and moving to the percentage that is too old to work increases at a faster rate than newborns. Which means that over time, the percentage of people that are responsible for driving the increase in output gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Right? That's logical. So, if the ch so starting with 100 people, if the Chinese want to increase the output by 5%, it's 5% per person, assuming the population doesn't rise. If the population starts shrinking, you have to do it by more than 5%. If you have fewer people of the population that shrunk that can actually work, you have to increase it by much more than 5%. Now, why does this matter to the world? It matters to the world for a very big reason. One is that a significant amount of global growth is driven by demand in China. There's good news and bad news here. The good news for everyone is that the Chinese GDP per capita is about $10,000. Depending on which source you use, it's either going to be $10,000, $10,500, or thereabouts. So it's somewhere between Brazil and Russia. What this means is that China still has to do a lot to increase their output per person. So that even if the population doesn't grow, the room to increase productivity per person is there. That's good news, right? The bad news is typically countries that have that low GDP per capita have very young populations so that those young people can work hard and increase the output per person. It's very, very rare that a company ages before it becomes wealthy. If you look at company, countries like Korea, Taiwan, Japan, they first got their GDP per capita, I don't know the exact number, but probably around twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 per person before they became what we would call older and shrinking populations. In the case of Japan, which does have a shrinking population, that occurred around 2007. But the bottom line is that if your population starts shrinking, you have to do more with your people. And of course, China will keep growing, but that growth is going to be much harder to come by. And what you're going to see is that countries with large populations that are very young are going to have room to drive global economic growth. China is going to be, it is an economic superpower. It's going to be an economic superpower. Where this population shrinks from 1.3 billion to 1.1 billion, that's still 1.1 billion people that's going to see their GDP per capita go from 10,000 odd dollars per person to 15, 20, 30, 40. That's going to have profound implications for the world. But it's not easy growth. And the insight is imagine how the world's going to change. It's going to have profound implications because industries that we see in Japan are going to be migrating to China, whether it's taking care of older people, building homes for older people, having industries that cater to an older population with large type font. Fewer schools will be built. The retirement age will go up. Travel industries will cater to older people. Older people need to date. They need to eat. It's a big issue in the world. And I would say that every CEO today, everyone in corporate 
America, corporate UK, corporate France, dare I say it, corporate China as well, needs to think about these implications. It's the biggest theme in strategy today. What happens when China's population starts shrinking in 2027? And the sub-bullet of that is what happens as China ages before it becomes wealthy. Wealthy is relative. China is going to be very wealthy. But it has profound implications. And companies that see this and start preparing for this are going to be in the right place at the right time. If you think COVID was big, this is a bigger topic. Finally, I want to talk about reviving a troubled division and obviously a career. And I want to celebrate some of our executive coaching clients in these calls as well. So I have a client who works for a major tech company. And he's, uh, I think, 36 or something like that. Kids and so on. And he's, he thinks he's in the twilight of his career. And he always likes to tell me, Michael, my career is going nowhere. I work for a part of a tech company that maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was seen as an important part of the business. And a lot of attention was put onto it. It was mentioned in press releases. The CEO spoke about it. But today, I have like 120 people reporting to me. I have a budget. But I don't sit anywhere near the corporate campus. I don't go to the main campus. I don't rub shoulders with the most important executive vice president. I've never seen the CEO in maybe two years, maybe three actually. Nobody worries about us. Nobody calls us into meetings. Nobody asks for our time. Basically, it's like people forgot about us. Morale is low and everything is fading and failing. And I made a list of all these things and he was saying, and I said, hey, do you realize that what you have is actually a good thing that you just don't see it's a good thing? And he was very puzzled about this and he was wondering, how can this be a good thing? Nobody talks to me. Corporate doesn't look at me. Nobody pays attention to me. The CEO doesn't even talk about this. I mean, we're an actual division. We're a unit of the company that has 120 staff. We have a fairly big budget, even though we only have 120 core employees. But nobody cares about this. And I told him, what you've got to realize is that in the real world, forget about what you read in textbooks and so on. In the real world, the last thing you want is attention. Because when you have corporate paying attention to you, when you have internal audit paying attention to you, when you have the legal department, that when you have the internal legal team, which is having meetings every day saying, how can we work closer with your unit? That's something you don't actually want in the real world. You want to have a budget, you want to have some talented people, and you want to be far away from the glare of corporate so you can experiment and do what you want. So what I did is I put him through a series of exercises. I'll talk to the successes he's had over COVID-19, which he's had great successes. The first thing I did is I said, you've got to raise morale. And he said, how do I raise morale? And he said, well, it's easy to raise morale. The first thing is you're going to have some fun with your people. Right? So my advice is since you're far away from corporate, just bring in a DJ on a Friday and you know, spin some tunes in the office and you know, don't serve alcohol, but have some kind of coffee hour or something. The point is you want to create, you want to get you want people to feel happy. That's how you raise morale. The first thing is people need to feel happy. Before you give them a sense of purpose, you need to make them feel happy. You've got to make them feel like they're not just coming to the office, going through the paces. So I made him do these little things at first, just to make employees feel valued and respected. And he's lucky because it's not that big. It's 120 people that are all in the same building, open plan offices. So I've seen pictures. It's an open foyer. I don't know where they put the DJ, but you put him anywhere and everyone can hear what's happening. The next thing is I got him started thinking about strategy. And what I told him is that the problem that you're encountering is you don't understand the purpose of your unit and you don't understand synergy. So the way he thinks about it is that his unit must be profitable 
It must make money. It must lead the company in new ways. It must regain its lost pride. It never had pride to begin with. It's always been a fairly has-been unit that's never been able to take on uh, the tech competitors that it's faced. And that's how he's run the business. How do they find a way to make money? And I tried to explain to him that's not what synergy is. You know, I've worked for many years with banks. Whenever you read about a wealth management division posting stunning successes, a big part of that is an IT system that sits behind it, a digital system, as they call it, a digital and IT system that sits behind it. But when the wealth management EVP talks about the successes in the wealth management division, externally, they don't talk about the digital and IT arm. They don't talk about how they've automated processes, how they've created apps, and how they've done many important things because a bank is basically an IT system. But internally, everyone knows the IT team was behind it. But here's the thing you've got to think about. That's synergy. By putting the IT team together with the wealth management team, something greater was created than could have existed if they were separate. So in this case, the digital and IT team is not a profit center. They don't make any money, do they? But they are directly responsible for the outsized profits in the wealth management division, and they work very closely with the wealth management division. In fact, they are subservient to the wealth management division. And this is what I was trying to get him to think about. He's thinking about his unit all wrong. You work in a software company, one of the biggest tech companies in the world. Your business, for lack of speaking, while it's a unit, while it's an actual division in the company, it's a division of people who code. You'd like a digital and IT, you like the digital and IT arm of a company. You gotta think of yourself in that way. Don't think about how your division can make money. That's wrong. I want you to think about how your capabilities and competencies of your unit can help the business be successful. So stop thinking about what you need. Stop thinking about what your company, what your division wants. That's the wrong way to think about it. You gotta think about what the company wants. The company doesn't want your division to be successful because you're not going to be successful by yourself. And success for you is not material to the company. If you doubled your profit margin, the company doesn't care, it's a drop in the bucket. If you lowered your cost structure, it doesn't matter. You're a drop in the bucket. If you stopped making money, the company wouldn't care. They wouldn't even bring it up. It probably wouldn't come up in a board meeting. But if you found a way to help the company achieve its broad goals, you become a powerful enabler of the company. And what I did is I set up a series of workshops. And that's how we created the Digital and IT Strategy Journal because I had to put this together for him to help him understand how does he go about thinking through what his team needs to do. And the starting point is one, understanding that his goal is not to make his division profitable and successful. His goal is to figure out how can his division and unit help the company achieve its broader goals. He needs to stop thinking of himself as a profit center, but possibly another type of center, maybe a cost center, maybe a service center, maybe a value center. So what happened is that he started doing that. They started inviting the heads of the other divisions to his unit to talk about what are their biggest priorities. And they started having these workshops where they started thinking about what could they do to help the biggest divisions. I'm not going to go into too much details because obviously this is an, a client that works with us very closely. But there is a tool that that company is rolling out to companies. And that tool with COVID-19, it's a communication tool, is probably the most powerful way this tech company has of getting its software into corporate clients 
and they're involved in a massive fight with other startups, big startups, backed by billions of dollars of money and other established tech titans to see who can own the communication space. And what these guys did is they figured out that there is a certain capability that that they are working on that if they embedded it into this communication tool, it made this communication platform much more sticky. Sticky means people use it and don't want to leave because they like to, not because they're stuck on it like a fly to flypaper, and much more indispensable to users so that the uptake of this communication tool went through the roof. And the thing is that everything changed for this client. And everything changed because he was open to rethinking his purpose. For a long time, he had read books saying leaders must lead their people, must build billion-dollar companies, must be profitable. He treated his unit like it's a profit center. It's not a profit center. This is digital and IT strategy. He's got a team of coders. His job is to figure out how can they support the broader business strategy. He's in a phenomenal job. His career has taken off. He's been promoted. His team is bigger. They've been called into key meetings these days. I told him not to move to main campus. That's not a good idea. You want to preserve the culture of your unit. And the best way to do that is to sit away from the main campuses. Otherwise, you're going to lose your people. They're just going to be sucked into other parts of the business. So it's worth talking about this client and it's worth celebrating. And here's the insight. And it's a very deep insight. To be successful in the world, you don't make yourself successful. You don't make your unit successful. You figure out how to make your broader company successful. And if you do that, that's when you get true synergy. So, I mean, a big shout out to this client. A phenomenal job. I'm very proud of him. And I'm sure we'll see very big things soon. As always, I'll see you next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.